Welcome to this episode of the Novara Law Podcast. We are featuring today the Novara Law win for insurers in the opioid epidemic litigation. My name is Jenna Hilgenbrink, Associate Attorney here with Karen Ludden, partner of Novara Law and chair of the Commercial Insurance Division. Karen, how are you doing today? Great. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Today we're talking about your win in the Ohio Supreme Court. Now, this win was back in September. Tell us a little bit about the facts of the case and the the broad scope holding from the Ohio Supreme Court. Okay. Well, the case was about whether or not an insurance company has an obligation to defend and indemnify its insured um, when it was sued in the um, National Prescription Opiate multi-district litigation. Uh, So it was an insurance coverage matter, to make a long story short. And um, it was not part of the MDL, uh, the multi-district litigation, but it was important to it because, you know, all of these distributors of prescription uh, opiates were being sued in one spot, and they were all looking to their insurance companies to uh, pay for their defense and any judgments against them. So it was a very important issue uh, that was the backdrop of the actual uh, litigation itself, the um, negligence litigation. Okay, very interesting backdrop. But who were the parties and what were the facts that led to the litigation? So in our particular coverage action, um, which was filed in Ohio, the parties were Acuity Insurance and its insured Masters Pharmaceuticals, which was a distributor of prescription opiates. So it was a separate insurance coverage uh, matter to decide whether or not the insurer had any obligation to defend or indemnify. The facts that led to the litigation um, are significant. So everybody knows about the opiate epidemic. It's what we talk about um, extensively in the news all the time uh, before the pandemic. And so uh, it was. It's a Nash. It's still an ongoing um, epidemic. And what the allegations in the MDL lawsuit were that prescription companies, both uh, manufacturers and distributors, and sometimes drug stores that um, sold the products, vendors uh, were over-prescribing, over-distributing, and over-selling prescription opiates to the public, and that they should have known that those were over-sells and had red flags in place um, to be careful about over-prescribing. There was a test case in West Virginia Uh, more than 10 years ago that was originally filed by um, um, governmental entities trying to seek recovery for their costs to help um, recovering addicts uh, and provide medical care for them. So it was really economic losses um, that those governments were trying to recover uh, from the distributors and manufacturers of the pharmaceuticals. So that case happened, and then from that spring... Uh, sister lawsuits in every state in this country, uh, all the counties and municipalities seeking the same damages. They were pretty much the same complaints, and those were all consolidated in the MDL. So you have all these governmental entities from all over the country suing um, various tiers of providers of opioids um, for compensation for their governmental programs. So that was the backdrop to the coverage case. The coverage case was... Well, does an insurer have to defend and indemnify whatever it's insured is? Is it a you know a provider? Is it a manufacturer? Do they have to do that? Is that part of a commercial general liability policy? Is that part of the coverage that they um, should have been provided? 
Okay. And it sounds like your role in this was very uh, in-depth, very detailed, and quite long, actually. So tell us a little, a little bit about your role in this case. Well, I wasn't involved in the original West Virginia test case uh, because in our particular case, the master's case, that was in Ohio insured, and I'm licensed in Michigan. Um, and that case was won on the trial court level, and um, it was appealed, but the case was ultimately settled on appeal. Uh, because decisions started coming down that were adverse to the insurer about whether or not there'd be insurance coverage for these types of events. Uh, but when the MDL happened um, and all these hundreds and thousands of municipalities started suing, bringing the same exact kind of suit, I was brought in as a strategist to evaluate with fresh eyes whether or not um, the insurers would have an opportunity to prevail on this issue, given the fact that there was a lot of bad case law coming up all over the country in state and federal courts um, that were finding that the insurers had to pay defense, at least defense costs, if not uh, indemnification in these cases. And so I looked at it with fresh eyes, and I felt that there was a path forward to establish that there is no defense and indemnification uh, obligation on an insurer for what was being alleged by these municipalities um, on, on several grounds. So. One of those grounds, uh, and there are many, and this isn't meant to be an exhaustive podcast, but um, there are there were many grounds. I mean, the most significant one is that the economic losses of a municipality are not uh, they're not covered losses. They're not damages because of bodily injury. Um, the government entities did not have any bodily injury. There might have been an underlying opiate addict, but uh, the governmental en entities were the ones bringing the lawsuits for economic loss only. And the commercial general liability policy does not provide coverage for that at all. It's unequivocal. They provide coverage for accidental bodily injury. Um, and in this setting, the governmental entity obviously doesn't have any bodily injuries. So um, that was one of the main points. Uh, and in general, commercial general liability po policies were never intended to cover uh, governmental programs. That's what taxes are for. Right, the government entity doesn't have standing to bring a bodily injury claim on behalf of the person who was injured. So the whole mechanism for uh, seeking coverage just really isn't there. That has never been what the CGL policies were intended to provide as coverage. Uh, and there's no way to underwrite it. Uh, there's, you know, underwriting is pooling risk, known risk, and no commercial general liability policy was intended to cover national programs all across the land um, for recovering addicts. That isn't their insured. That isn't what they were um, charging premiums for. And you couldn't possibly underwrite or charge premiums for that kind of a scope um, because no commercial insured could afford to pay a premium like that. So uh, these were governmental entities, and they have taxes that available to them to cover their programs, and that is how it should have been. So that was the the general idea, and I came in as a strategist and argued in the trial court successfully um, that this was not a covered, uh, a covered loss. So, as a strategist, how does one create a strategy for a case of such importance? Well, I don't know if you have heard of reptile theory. Reptile theory is the concept that jurors uh, react viscerally um, through their, you know, most reptilian brain, their amygdala, out of fear uh, generally when they are reaching a conclusion. And then they reason back to it and say, we, the jury, decided this. But really, it's that driving fear or concern that led them to 
create their conclusion and then they reason it back from there. So um, that's typically used in the context of, you know, trucking accidents or, you know, damages cases. But I feel that the reptile theory also applies to insurance coverage because particularly in this case, the judge is coming into this case and he's heard of the opiate epidemic and, you know, the uh, justices on the Supreme Court have heard of the opiate epidemic. And, you know, their wives and friends and dinner time conversation revolve around, well, what are you going to do about it? So we weren't coming in to make arguments to justices and judges that um, had no idea what was at stake here or how important it was. So it was important to think about, well, what does this judge, what do, was the panel of judges, what are they thinking about? Um, how have they ruled in the past on issues of social consequence? What are their motivations? What bent do they seem to be leaning towards? And how can you speak to those issues? And it's difficult because, you know, you might have conservative justices you might or judges. You might have liberal justices or judges. And you have to speak to all of them in a way that appeals to them. So um, one judge may be responsive to the argument that the insurance business, the industry, cannot function if they are asked and called upon to um, provide insurance uh, to this kind of economic damage, which is really not in the language of the policy at all, and therefore an uninsured risk, asking them to pay millions of dollars in damages that were that no premium was ever charged for, uh, doesn't work. And some judges may feel and understand uh, with either an insurance background or a conservative background that that is a sound argument, and of course there's no coverage for that. Um, a more liberal judge or justice might have no ears for that argument, but may feel that the argument that a government does not have standing to bring a bodily injury claim on behalf of its constituents, they're basically stealing the right to bring that claim, taking it from them, they may feel that that is the best argument that, you know, your government can't bring a lawsuit for you and keep the money when you were the injured party. So we put a lot of thought into um, how to appeal to the um, the psyches of the various judges on this type of a matter of such consequence because we knew they weren't coming into the case with no knowledge of the idea or feelings about how it should be resolved. And you mentioned earlier that some other states had um, touched these issues before a little bit. You know, I'm curious, how was this decision similar or different from other states' rulings on the same issues? Well, I'm sure I'm a little biased, but I feel one of the ways that it is distinguishable is that it was a very comprehensive decision by the Ohio Supreme Court, very well thought out. They clearly understood um, the insurance industry, the language of the policies, the background of how these kinds of policies were written and for what, what the clear language said. It's a very thorough opinion. Some of the decisions, um, they're adverse, and there's far more adverse decisions than um, the right decisions in my mind. Uh, were cursory and just sort of knee-jerk reactions to we have to save the world from the opiates and we're going to get that insurance money whether we should or not, whether or not the plain language of the insurance policy provided it or not. So I, I think it's um, one of the few decisions that uh, turned out right um, and is supported by the language of the policy. And how did the court's interpretation of damages of bodily injury, I noticed that phrase was used a number of times in the opinion. How did uh, the court's interpretation of that phrase assist in the win? And how does it help, um, you know, in cases maybe beyond this one, something uh, similar in insurance coverage disputes? 
Well, the, the phrase uh, is taken from the policy itself, and it's damages because of bodily injury. So uh, the justices were looking at, is this uh, something that the insured was obligated to pay as damages because of bodily injury? That's the whole clause from the uh, insurance policies. And focusing on the issue of, well, whose bodily injury does it have to be? Is it enough that there is an opiate um, addict who sustains bodily injury? Is that because of bodily injury? Or does it have to be the person or entity bringing the lawsuit, like the government? And obviously, a government cannot sustain bodily injury. And the justices saw clearly that in order to trigger coverage, it has to be the person bringing or entity bringing the lawsuit. And in this case, it's governmental entities. So clearly, they're not damages because of bodily injury. All right. Well, thanks for that explanation. I guess, you know, kind of on a more basic level, how does it feel? How does the win feel? It feels great. You know, it was uh, very many years in the making to take it all the way up to the Ohio Supreme Court. And uh, I really do believe firmly that that is the right decision. And so it's nice to see uh, a well-written, well-reasoned Supreme Court decision supporting what is the, I think, the correct decision in this, this matter. Yeah, the justices really certainly uh, took their time, I think, issuing this decision, and it was very well thought out, very long, detailed opinion. So once again, congratulations on the win for Acuity. If anyone has questions, how can they reach you? They can reach me at Navarra Law. My email address is kll at navarralaw.com. And you can reach me, Jenna Hilgenbrink, at gkh at navarralaw.com. That is all the time we have. We hope you learned something on this episode of the Navarra Law Podcast. Check us out next time on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Just search the words Navarra Law Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day.